Hello, you're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. My name is John Jacob and this is podcast number 37. Every episode in this podcast series is an experience. It's a snapshot in time and in the moment that you hear, it's a reflection of both my curiosity and ignorance and, importantly, the willingness of the contributor or contributors to meet that curiosity head-on and dutifully fill in the void. When I listen back to the conversation, my thinking develops, and in that way, these podcasts are basically one long sector-wide learning opportunity for me. The fact that other people enjoy listening to them is an unintended and serendipitous boon. It's also a reflection of where my listening state is. I don't really care if I know something or if I don't. In some respects, I prefer it to be completely unfamiliar if I'm approaching a new work for the first time. I'm interested in discovering how someone else's art, their viewpoint or their process helps develop mine. I want things to have an impact on me and when they do I want to reflect on why. What emerges from all of these conversations is that I'm increasingly fascinated by what connects audience member to performer, what role and responsibilities each brings to the listening experience to create the art that moves us. And when we've ascertained that, how we go about marketing it, marketing that very experience in a way that's authentic, respectful and celebratory. This conversation with Manchester Collective Managing Director Adam Zarbo nudges me a little bit closer to that goal. I first met Adam at a King's Place concert. Maybe it was a gig, an event, an experience, I'm not entirely sure what to call it, uh, where the music was varied, the volume was loud and the impact was considerable. It brought me closer to the fundamental principle of what we're dealing with here. Sounds have an impact on human beings. That's it at its most basic level. Adam and I met for a brief coffee in a noisy bookshop somewhere in Soho a few weeks later, after which we sat down to record this podcast, this time with a bottle of wine. Red, of course. I'm sure that we'll talk a lot, but I don't, I, I've got things at the weekend. I need yeah. to, yeah, oh, really, I I, 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 maybe if I move it closer a bit, because yeah, sure. I'd just like you to be... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all about the bass. Are you a bass or are you a tenor? Uh, I don't know. Kind of a bass baritone, I guess. Do you sing? I used to. Yeah, I used to sing. Um, I that was my kind of. So my dad. <laughs> Let me take you back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've misunderstood what this is about. <laughs> no, um, my dad used to play in an opera orchestra um, in Sydney, and so I did all the children's choruses as a kid. I was like a nine and ten year old, um, and so I started singing then, and then uh, singing gallery choirs at school. You didn't have any choice, did you? That's all right. <laughs> really? I mean, it's pretty fun, sort of cavorting around on stage, you know. So you had full access to the stage in the auditorium during rehearsals? Yeah, yeah. Wowzers. Yeah, it was awesome. Yes. Yeah. Whenever I stand on stage, I I do sort of think, oh, it's, ter- it's a terribly privileged position because you don't have to play. Mm. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to play at all. You just, you just stand there and be. Uh, it's a terribly exciting space, I think. Um it's a pretty magical building, um, Sydney Opera House, you know, because you're there on the harbour as well and everything's kind of sparkly and blue. And, I mean, moving here, it's a real shock because, of course, the oldest building in uh, Sydney is like 120 years old or something. And so, you know, you come out here and people's, like, carports are older than that. Um, uh, so I think we call them garages here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just so that we're clear. Uh, do Australians have the same issue with history? Well, not the same issue 
but the same thing about English history or British history as the Americans do. Because when the, when the Americans come over here, they get, it's like they've died and gone to heaven. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's just lovely being around old stuff in general, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have kind of an amazing uh, indigenous culture of, of like really sort of crazy old things. Um, but in terms of, of, you know, built up areas and being able to, you know, whatever, see Charles Dickens's house or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was never really particularly moving well, on that. Um, uh, so Sydney, the last time I spoke to somebody about Sydney Opera House was... Richard Tognetti. Yeah, I listened to that interview. Who had some quite strong views <laughs> about yeah. most things. Yeah, uh, for sure. But also Sydney Opera House. Yeah. Because I, I mean, think it was being used for advertising at the time. Oh, yeah, that was the whole um, racing thing, which was a bit of a shit show. Um, but. Uh, Is that now done? I want you to speak on behalf of Australia. I haven't music. really been following it, but, um, you know, we've, we've, there's always some fire. We've just been dealing with. Cardinal George Pell at the same time that we've been <laughs> yes. fighting the Brexit fires on this side of the world. So right, uh... let's focus on what's important. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. We can we can deal with the Opera House eventually, but let's deal with the the, the abuse first. Um, uh, didn't really expect to cover that so soon uh, in this. Why are we meeting? Why are we here? What's the thing? Um, so r- right here in this particular house, or, well, no. or in the more general <laughs> sense, because <laughs> we can go into that story. No, in the more general sense, because I think you've you've written something for international arts yeah. thing, have you not? I about have done yeah. audiences. Yeah. So um, so I uh, run a, an organisation called Manchester Collective, which is basically an audience development project uh, disguised as a touring string ensemble, and. Um, and disguised I, well you know disguised. I, I suppose you know we i mean you could describe us as a string ensemble or a string quartet but i suppose it wouldn't be a particularly useful description of the actual work that we do right okay um and uh and it's been really interesting seeing the work of the organization kind of unfold over the last few years and uh i've just started in the last kind of six months to a year writing more again and starting to kind of pen some ideas and, and just completely subjective observations about uh, the audiences that we've been encountering, you know, in our touring and, and across the country, I suppose. How is that How is that experience? Because as someone who is quite used to expressing my own opinions, um, I don't have a problem until I've published it and then I go, oh no, what have I done? Um I wonder how it is for you. Do you do you have a problem with that, or, or or do you take a long time to formulate those opinions and then you present them? I did. I mean, yeah. I, I sort of. I can never really believe that anyone's actually reading it anyway, right. and so yeah. you know that kind of gets you comfortable when you're writing your thoughts down. I I was you deny moved. the audience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I was kind of moved to start writing again because I went to see this extraordinary show in Glasgow that. I just found to be such a, a kind of incredibly joyful artistic experience that I just kind of had this fanboy explosion and wrote an article about it. And then I suppose having having opened the floodgates, um, I thought it might be, you know, interesting. You mean you emoted. Yeah, exactly. I emoted. It's very dangerous, you know, in this business to be too earnest about anything. Yes, absolutely. Um, to yes. express kind of genuine enthusiasm is kind of and a how risky do you, project. how do you find that... Uh, that lands with people. I mean, you say that you don't, that you don't, I recognise that thing that when you're writing stuff, you don't necessarily think about uh, who is reading it, which is probably a good thing. Uh, I wonder whether after publishing it, you've 
um, you've got any feedback? Yeah, I think I think it's we're really kind of at a turning point, or have been at a turning point for the last kind of five or ten years, where um, you know big organisations and big music organisations are thinking more and more about their audiences. And I suppose my own experience of this is I kind of trained as a player. I was always a cellist uh, playing in orchestras, playing chamber music. And it's funny that if you do that for, you know, 10 years or 20 years or a whole career, you can really get by, get through a whole career of playing music at a professional level and, and never think one single thought about audiences because basically you because you don't need to no, yeah you don't, you don't need to no I mean the you know the music stand is there and the sheet music's on the thing and then a conductor rocks up and then you basically get changed do the show go to the pub what a miserable life what a <laughs> miserable life that's <laughs> ah, great you know um, and so it was funny that it was only really when we started doing our own work with the collective um, and I guess trying to pull this new audience for a new thing together for the first time that we really started thinking carefully about who those people might be and and I guess who we were interested in in playing to. And I think it probably is a relatively common experience of of younger chamber musicians and orchestral players that, you know, I mean, not exclusively, of course, there is a really diverse audience for orchestral music in this country, but I think it's probably a common experience that you look out into an auditorium, you know, having just sort of smashed out Marla 5 or something and you don't really see a lot of people, you know, that that really look like you. And I think if you happen to be, you know, kind of black or Asian or whatever, then that's like even more so. It's like, it's a pretty narrow band of the population that by and large is the majority audience at these events, um, which, you know, and, and we love all those people. It's brilliant. And, you know, we kind of share this incredible music with them and, they're wonderful and enthusiastic and, and whatever. We would never want to kind of malign that crowd. But also, I think there's sort of a terrific opportunity for us all um, to be playing, you know, this great music to people who maybe aren't, you know, frequent flyers in the concert halls of the UK. Um, because then it's not like, oh, you know, I'm not that familiar with Chike 5. It's that they may not have seen a violin up close before, you know. Um and I suppose for us, as uh, as you know, a young organisation with a really tight budget a lot of the time, um, from the beginning, doing a lot of work online and social media and filming kind of recorded stuff and putting that out um, was a really a sort of natural fit. And I think a, a sort of unintended um, byproduct of that was that somehow the material that we were putting out online started to find people who weren't really in the sort of distribution world of, you know, the sort of South Bank Centre classical mm. brochure for January to March. Um, Which is a nightmare to navigate. I mean, I love print, but it is a nightmare to navigate because they have so many events in it. It's always, <clears throat> that's always struck me as a, a both a, a, a great thing about it, but also... A bewildering thing because even for me as a punter, I look at the the classical music listings and think I don't know I don't know where I, I don't know where to begin because there's loads of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I sort of know about it. Do you know? You know, I'm I'm reasonably familiar and yeah, I can navigate my way around. But but um, I imagine that, and this is not contrary to my tweet earlier in the week about the membership bar. Um, this is not a, a criticism of the South Bank Centre. Uh, <clears throat> I was struck by uh, what you said beforehand. I'm only leaning in because, obviously, 
I can hear this and I'm thinking, I feel like I'm in a tunnel. Um, uh, I was struck by you saying that as an orchestral player, you would sit in the, the orchestra and look at the audience and not see yourself in the audience, which is something that I don't know I've heard anybody say. Because most people, most people, or most marketers, for example, talk about how audience members sit in the auditorium and look at the stage and don't see themselves on stage. So it's quite an interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing for us. You know, it's a really fine line to walk, and I have gotten in a lot of trouble in the past. And Have you? I, I, well, no, <laughs> when you are. say trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, there's time enough for that after we can okay, finish fine, this. Okay, fine, okay. Um, no, but we... Uh, we spoke at a conference yesterday where we were talking about audiences and, um, and trying to, I guess, uh, you know, grow kind of a younger, more diverse audience for classical music. And I had a lady come up to me after the, after the talk who, you know, had a sort of had a real strop and sort of said, you know, Oh, well, actually I go to concerts all the time and there is a super diverse audience and, you know, the proms, there's lots of young people that go to the proms and, you know, and I mean, she was like <laughs> really articulate argument. <laughs> well, no, I mean, she was kind of in her sixties and affluent and Caucasian, right. and and I don't know. It was like it was this funny thing where I was. I guess what I was trying to say to her was that um, we love having you at our shows, but also you you don't don't get too upset just because for once someone's making something that isn't. Primarily like, for primarily you. Primarily yeah. for you. Because everything is for her or for like for that demographic. You know? Yes. And did um, you feel the need to placate her? Um uh, yeah, I mean I I I sort of did you feel so like, oh, much I'm terribly sorry you know, in a in a sort of a customer facing kind of way. Did you Well did you I sort of tried to, to explain. I mean I th- I mean I think like empirically we have a lot of work to do with classical audiences. You know, it's just not a representation of, you know, the kind of country that we live in, the culture that we live in. Um, we don't see that incredible multicultural diversity and, like, age diversity and um, socioeconomic diversity in the concert hall. Like, that's just a fact. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of tried to make that argument and, and you know, talked a bit about Janeke, which she hadn't heard of, Um and uh, she hadn't heard of it. No, she hadn't. Um, gosh, and I think actually gosh, that I'm was surprised about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I mean, they do really incredible work, and it's a really compelling argument to me mm. that you know, if you're like, you know, a sort of a, a sort of young, whatever Southeast Asian violinist, um, then maybe you don't grow up with like loads of role models, you know, and it's really important to be able to sort of see people. Yeah, do you think the sector is? Do you think it's misrepresented? Um, how do you mean? So do you, do you, sometimes I think, and actually, an occasion happened this afternoon, where and there was something at the ABO conference which I think that you were. I'm pointing at you in a very rude way now, <laughs> um, but uh, I think Joe Johnson from the LSO reflected on how some um, inadvertent marketing copy can peddle a stereotype about the sector, which yeah. the intent behind it is we want to make everyone feel included, but actually in order to get everyone feeling included, some people unwittingly put a premise out, which is you probably think that classical music is really stuffy. And yeah. and actually what that is achieving is is misrepresenting, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot before you've got to the to the punchline. I so that's why I wonder whether you 
might think that in some areas classical music is misrepresented. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's a really fine line. I mean, I, I totally am on the side of, you know, building up the classical sector and we should all be, you know, out there for each other promoting what is mostly really amazing art and great mm. experiences for, you know, all different kinds of audiences. Um, and so, you know, real negativity you know, running a whole marketing campaign that's like, God, concerts are so boring. Like, fuck those guys. You know? <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. Not, you're not planning on doing that. No, Okay, well, I'm glad that we've got that out of the and way so, first. <laughs> you know, I guess that's, you know, like a pretty counterproductive way to, to try and attract an audience by completely distancing yourself from everything that has come before. Um, I guess there's also a little part of my brain that, that kind of feels that sometimes it's important to call out bad practice and... Uh, you are you curmudgeonly? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, but I think sometimes there are there are always things that we could be doing better, and and yeah, I think sometimes it's important to to call out the work that we should be doing. Uh, do you experience any cynicism? I didn't want to interview you, but it seems that I am now. No, it's great. <laughs> do you experience any cynicism in the sector? Do other people in the sector sort of go, oh, oh, you're doing that, are you, Adam? Yeah, we've all tried that. Do, do you see what I mean? Um, I'm sure they wouldn't say it. But not so much. I mean, look, we like. I, I mean, we do one specific thing, which is play really varied programs. Two of them, you know, play kind of alternative venues as well as concert halls. Like we do. Like if you don't like our particular, you know, flavor of Coca Cola, then that's fine. Like it's it's not for you. It's never going to be for everyone, and we would never. You know, I, I don't think that it's the only way to do things. It's probably certainly not the best way to do things. But it's just the way that we kind of operate. And so uh, I think, you know, all we can do is do the best job that we can with the resources that we have, um, you know, to produce work that we believe in. Uh, I think chamber music is really difficult, actually, because there's such an amazing and really amazing, well-established tradition of quartet playing. Um, we play mostly chamber music is what we tour and and we don't it's it's quite rare that we would play string quartets or at least it's very rare that we would play the kind of core 19th century string quartet canon because you know these are the works of the of the repertoire where you know like the Tokarch quartet used to do house concerts of Beethoven 132 for a year before they'd perform it for the first time in public, you know, and it's, like you sort of... Because everything is a marathon. Everything yeah, is an Olympic just, marathon. Like, I mean, and those... It's, I mean, for good reason. Like, mm. those pieces are incredibly complex, kind of profound sort of musical enigmas that are both artistically, you know, real Everest to climb mm. and, and also just technically are hugely challenging works to put together... And, you know, you can sink a lifetime into those pieces and still feel like you sort of barely scratch the surface. And so, you know, for us, when we come along and we say, OK, well, we've got eight shows on tour and we've got a Monday to Wednesday to put the show together. You know, it, we don't really play to our strengths if we sort of say, OK, great, we're going to do all six late Beethovens this tour. <laughs> so it's pragmatism, actually, because I think what you're saying is, is that there's in some respects, there's no it wouldn't be the best use of your resources no, absolutely uh, not. to commit to all of those things because possibly if you're looking to introduce people to this format, um, they may not bite on it first time. And yeah. if you put all of that effort in for, well, not that I'm suggesting that you're not putting effort in, but, uh, but to put that effort into that and they don't bite on it would feel 
well, I imagine, dispiriting. Yeah, it's not so much about, for us, it's not so much about the audience not biting on it, but like, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's easy, like there's snobbery in every in every field and so actually the tour that we just wrapped up was a string quartet tour where we played death and the maiden which is a 19th century string quartet <laughs> exactly what i just said we would never do <laughs> let's um, not worry we, let's um, not worry about piffling you detail know, but we played um we played death and maiden and we played george crumb black angels which oh is right this extraordinary right. Okay. work for electronic yes. string quartet and like a whole kind of litany of percussion instruments craziness a Utter thousand craziness. glasses that we kind of broke a whole bunch of on tour you know it was all kind of exciting drama drama how very rock and roll oh it was great it was a cool show. Um, but, you know, we did kind of have a quartet player that, that someone spoke to at some point on the tour that said, oh, well, you know, I mean, normally when people put Black Angels together, they'd rehearse for, for months, you know, and how could you, you know, oh, it must be so oh. difficult to do that in just three days. Um, and, you know, yeah, of course, like everyone could rehearse more. I mean, look, we live like London is the city of orchestras doing extraordinary work on an incredibly small amount of time, you know. And and we could always put more time into it, um, but you know we do the best that we can with the time that we have, and and actually, you know we also work with some of the best chamber players in the country, and I think you know for the most part they come out you know really with the goods just about every time you know. And as a listener, I'd I'd say that spending loads of time rehearsing work doesn't necessarily guarantee that that I will experience a um, an event where I will feel moved. So, because that's not what is required. I mean, it is yeah. required to an extent. No, but, but... I, I think it's, I mean, it's funny that you say, because we don't talk about this a lot in classical music, that um, that there is something about live performance that is different to mm. uh, something that you record in a studio. And I think often, I don't know, I guess it's it's easy for us when we play, you know, this big classical repertoire to be thinking, especially when there's not a lot of time, to be thinking a lot about perfection and how can I get this, you know, to be as beautiful and as accurate as what is in the dots in the score, you know. And and actually, I think something that we think a lot about in our rehearsal is, you know, how can we paint this piece with, like, the most vivid primary colours that we can? You know, how can we kind of conjure up the most sort of visceral and intense experience for the audience on that day. And maybe, you know, sometimes that means that, you know, we sort of take more risks in a live performance than, than what you would necessarily do if you wanted to come up with a, with kind of a super accurate or, oh, that sounds like we never play accurately, but you know well, no, I mean? no, but, I mean, but that, but aren't you, aren't you there pointing to the, the phenomenally difficult thing, which is that, uh, we, we get so het up about perfection. Yeah, it's and actually, stuff. it's possible to listen to a less than perfect perform live performance and still be on the edge of your seat. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I just, I'm a bit behind the party on this, but I, I just discovered the record of um, David Bowie's 2000 Glastonbury set, which got okay. released kind of towards the end of last year. And I mean, if you listen to like Life on Mars on that record, it's it's awesome. It's so good, and it's like it's nothing like the kind of you know the album version. There's this kind of crazy sort of jazz piano solo in the middle of the song, sort of for no real reason. I guess that's kind of what he was feeling at the time. You know, the yeah. musicians that he was working which with, which is live performance, and, isn't and it? It's great, and it's a totally different thing. And and I think you'd have to. I mean, you'd be really missing the point of David Bowie if you listen to that live track and you're like, oh god, this is nothing like it sounds <laughs> yeah. on the you know. Yes. Um, yes. and yet people do 
yeah. classical music. Well, that's the thing, I suppose. And I, I don't mean, know where that's come from. I don't well, understand I where that's come from. I think it's kind of. Uh, I mean, this is probably simplistic, but I suppose it's uh, it's wrapped up with the kind of advent of the recording at the beginning of the twentieth century, and suddenly, you know, for the first, I think um, Mendelssohn. Uh, you have to fact check this, but I think Mendelssohn conducted the second ever performance of St. Matthew's Passion. Um, like however many, you know, decades and decades and decades later, people just weren't able to hear works played for the second time. Mm. Pretty much if you went to a live show in 1880, then it was going to be the first time that you'd ever heard that piece of music before. And so suddenly kind of recording comes around in like 1901, 1902, you know, kind of a few decades later, it starts kind of really becoming widespread. People have, you know, uh, a way to listen to music in their home and suddenly there's this seismic shift in the audience, which is that you come to a show expecting to hear yes. a certain yeah. thing that maybe yeah. you're already familiar with. And, you know, there's this brief golden period where you have these um, sort of crazy, unbridled, uh, fearless recordings of great pieces by great musicians, kind of in the, I guess, the first sort of half of the 20th century. There's insane recordings of Elgar conducting Enigma <laughs> Variations, you know. And and it sounds nothing like what the Enigma Variations sounds like today, if you go and hear, you know, the LPO play that piece. Um, but, you know, they were just kind of doing it, and that's how they did it. And then enough of these kind of iconic recordings get made. And then, of course, the next generation of, like, conservatoire kids or, you know, yes. sort of violin students you start sort of thinking, oh, that's what the Beethoven Violin Concerto is meant to sound like. And, you know, you kind of get into this feedback loop. I suppose, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I think if we're talking about, like, concerto soloists, for example, I can really count on one hand or maybe two hands the number of concerto soloists that are, the kind of, you know, really prolifically touring today who, if you hear a blind recording of theirs you know that that is unmistakably yes. that specific person totally. playing. Yeah. You just don't get that anymore. No. And if you go back, you know, however many years, then, you know, you know a Heifetz recording if you hear a Heifetz recording. So, I don't know. I there, no, there are, there's, there's one violinist whose name I, uh, it's a constant theme, I, I struggle to pronounce. Um, he's Finnish. Uh, Pekka Kuzisto. Yeah. yeah. And actually, when I hear him play, whether it's live or whether it's recorded, I think I know it's exact. I know it's you. Yeah, he's a bad And there's something... Uh, there's something indescribable about his playing, uh, which I well, I probably can describe it. I would describe it as hot and yeah, electric, and hot. just um, you've got me pinned to the wall. I don't. I, you could play anything. You could play a Simo de Scale, and I'd love it. Um, <clears throat> and similarly, uh, Jacqueline Dupre. Yeah, sure. And I mean, that's a super iconic recording. But like that recording, but it's of also concerto. It has it, shaped. Like Everything. every single yeah. other Elgar concerto <laughs> like ever to be recorded. So at the same time as absolutely loving it, uh, it has ruined every subsequent performance of it because well, yeah, because I, in that way I just sort of go go to a performance of the Elgar and go, yeah, thanks, really good work, but maybe not. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's it's not even that everything is always going to be the same, but but for better or for worse, it casts such a long shadow that if you're going to go and record Elgar concerto, then then you will. Like, you will either, I guess, conceive your musical interpretation in opposition to that recording. Yes, or, yes, exactly. I don't know, maybe not for some people, but it's, like, it's tough, I think, to to kind of escape the really long shadow of these iconic, iconic performances. Um, yeah. 
Where, where, what were we so are you are you resist? Are you sort of doing battle with that? With your approach to different um, uh, a different approach to concert production, or are you sort of going okay? Um, we're just going to play our own channel. Um, are you are you reacting against something? Do you think, or are you sort of going? This is a, a, an articulation of what we want to do. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's kind of retro what we do, to be honest. I mean, we program in in sort of an early 20th century, late 19th century sort of salony way. You know, we played this. Um, we did a whole tour of this Schubert Crumb Quartet program over the last two weeks, and then in the last show, we were at this particular venue that we thought you know, was going to be in a particular way. And, and then we sort of decided that we'd just cut the last two movements of the Schubert. And instead of having an interval in the show... I can feel myself we... just completely, oh my God, you no, did what? I mean, so we, we kind of scrapped the interval um, and uh, and we played movement one, movement two of Death and the Maiden and then without applause, like like seamlessly ran it into the beginning of... of um, uh, what's it called? Black Angels. Um, which, for anyone that doesn't know, the piece starts. It's amplified for a start, and so you go from an acoustic sound to a amplified sound with like a really gnarly reverb on it. Um, and it starts off with this kind of uh, hysterical, terrifying, screechy string tremolo, which just sounds like absolute chaos. The first movement is called "Night of the Electric Insects," okay, um, okay. and so you're taken <clears throat> from the gorgeous slow movement of the Schubert into this totally other world. Um, and oh, it was great. Like people were really into it and it was fun for us and it was kind of something a bit different, but the, I mean, this isn't a new thing. Like these kind of salony chamber music concerts used to be, oh yeah, come on, old mate's going to come and say a poem now. And then someone else is going to play the slow movement of a sonata. And then, you know, and I, and I think actually in a strange way, that sort of compilation approach to programming is sort of reflected in the way that people consume music now. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate saying that, consume music, but the way that people listen to music now with kind of playlists on streaming services and, you know, if you sort of, if you're not a hardcore classical kind of fan, but you're someone that really likes the sound of that music, then it's pretty unlikely that you're going to sit down and, you know, kind of make a cup of tea and then listen to the whole of Don Quixote. (laughs) You know, it's more likely you'll listen to like one particular movement which will run into like, you know, Claire de Lune, which will run into Beethoven Pastoral Symphony, which will run into like a Chopin prelude. And Uh, that's that's great. What was the... uh, I'm trying to remember what was on the programme at the King's Place event, which is where I uh, first met you. Um... There were things there that I wouldn't have chosen to... I'm sorry, it's breaking news, and I'm just going to turn the phone over. I'm not that much connected to the news. It's fine. Is this Brexit? We all completely... Um, it's, all, it's all Brexit. I'm just going to deny it for now until this is over. Because but by I... the time this comes out, listeners, you'll <laughs> know be, exactly yeah. what's going could be, on. could be the end of the world. Yeah. Really could, or it could also be the beginning of a bright new future, uh, depending on what side of the debate you are. Um the programme that was in the King's Place concert is not something that I would have actively sought out to go to. That was the first thing for me. Uh, when I arrived there, I was transported by the theatrical effect of it. And there was definitely music there that I wouldn't have thought I would have enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose, like, to, to kind of um, comment on your first observation, if... You know, I guess what we try and do is chase this um, kind of less experienced audience for classical music. 
um, if you're not a hardcore classical music fan, then I think it's pretty unusual that you'd ever go to anything for the program. Mm. Because if you don't know what, you know, Janacek Kreutzer Sonata sounds like, then whether or not it's Janacek Kreutzer Sonata on the program or Beethoven Kreutzer Sonata on the program is kind of, you know, totally immaterial. And so in terms of the way that we put the shows together, it's really pretty rare for us to try and sell anything to the audience to try and convince anyone to come to a show based on the music in that actual yeah, show. Yeah. Um, I suppose the exception to that is where we're doing something that is kind of a big Everest of the repertoire, like kind of Messian Quartet for the end of time or something. And then, of course, you know, we build a narrative around this is this kind of great piece that is a real once in a lifetime. You've got to hear this piece before you die. Um, and that's absolutely the case. Yeah, which is, <laughs> oh, I mean, it's amazing. Um, but I suppose with that show um, that you came to see, which is called, uh, the show was called 100 Demons, um, it was a show which was much more kind of concept driven. Um, it was about uh, the space between live string playing and the electronic music world and what happens when you combine those two worlds in different ways. And so um, the, the kind of big uh, sort of meaty piece in the program was a new commission from a great um, English composer called Daniel Elms. That was the 100 Demons of the title of the program. And then in the first half of the show, we had this kind of whistle-stop tour through different approaches to combining these worlds. So amazing music from Edmund Finnis, and then we had some Steve Reich, the kind of big uh, iconic violin phase piece. And then, you know, we worked with an amazing producer called Vessel, um, who came and did a solo set for 10 minutes on his... That was the thing that really moved me, actually, yeah. because there were moments in, in that set... And I feel really, weirdly, I feel really uncomfortable using the word set because I just think I'm too old to use that. I, I, I'm, I'm an imposter. Uh, but I that's, mean, I, that's I'm for an therapy. imposter too. You know, but <laughs> like, for therapy. But it's, it, I mean, because you, I mean, it's, it feels weird to me to call it like a piece. Well, yes, like, you know, no, no, I, I can see what you mean. Opus one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was, that was definitely the thing that moved me because it made me, um, I had quite a strong physical reaction to it in places. Yeah. There were there were moments where I was thinking, make it stop, make it stop. Not yeah. because it was awful, but yeah. because it was just you are really pushing my pushing me to my limits now. Yeah. And uh and I also couldn't work out whether any of it was planned. Yeah. Uh, or whether it really was essentially improvised uh using electronic equipment. Um and and that says to me that that's art. Because if I'm having that reaction, then that's that's an emotional reaction to sound. So therefore, it's art. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... maybe I'm thinking too much into it. No, but... no, no. I'm, I'm totally with you. I think that I mean, his name's Seb, um, Seb Gainsborough. I think he's an amazing musician, and um, you know, and and as you say, at the end of the day, it's noises in the room that are going into your ears, and if they make you feel something, then that's great. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I that that. Um, that kind of piece or that set that he put together was sort of a musical collage of of different uh, recorded works and field recordings of um, kind of folk singing from various parts of the world and uh, kind of like a, a sort of a, a medley or like a patchwork quilt of these different musical kind of fragments that he wove together into this sort of bigger narrative. Um, had you heard it before I heard it? 
I, so was it was it like a fresh creation in that moment? I mean, he'd done it on tour with us, so the I guess the constituent parts were relatively set, but it sounded different every night. I guess that's the lie. But I mean, I remember when we started doing this, I had huge hang-ups about what what was that like that he was doing that was live. Like, what is it even live uh, music if you're not making a noise with a wooden box and like on an metal author. and horsehair? You know what? Like, what is it that he's actually doing? Um, you were after authenticity, proof of authenticity. Well, I guess it's just because he could have just could have just clicked on a file. Could of he course, not have yeah, just yeah. Done this. I mean, it's the... a totally different. It's a totally different world. Um, yeah, I suppose. Luckily for us you know, the kind of new music audience isn't really too fussed about a lot of these questions. In a way, they, they have fewer hang-ups, I think, about, like, exactly what the um, kind of provenance of the noises <laughs> are. Um, and um, But that is also... But I think that it also comes from, if you like, the conventional classical music world, because we are, uh, as listeners, we are um, conditioned to see a performer come on stage and then perform live unamplified yeah and if there if there's any technology in between the performer and the audience then there's potential trickery Uh, and and so i think that i think it probably comes from that i mean i guess you know if if you were kind of in a kind of belligerent mood then you could kind of say oh well you know steve reich violin phase that's a piece for tape and violin the tape is three violin tracks and so does that mean that only one quarter of that performance is a live music performance? I've always assumed can. with violin phase that um, that if you're the violinist, you've had to record the other tracks. Is that not the well, case? It's. I mean, the thing with violin phase is actually shine light in on magic. So the thing the thing about violin phase is that the entirety of the tape part is this little musical fragment that just goes like da 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 da. da. Like, that's literally it. It's a 10-minute piece, mm. and the whole piece is made up with repeating that little fragment. Um, it's but as kind a performer, of... are you having to record that first? No, so it's optional. I think, I mean... Or you're provided. Sometimes it. you're provided it, you know, by the publisher. I think Violin Phase is... I don't want to say who it is, because I'm probably wrong. But they give you a, a kind of a file, I think. I mean, there are other... I mean, the other thing is that with... There's another piece called Cello Counterpoint, which is a similar kind of idea. Um... And in that piece, the, the, the taped cello parts aren't actually uh, the same little fragment repeated lots of times. And so if you want to record your own accompaniment, then, you know, suddenly you kind of quadruple the amount of time that it takes to put the piece together. And you have to go into a recording studio and it's like a whole other thing. And so, yeah, I, I suppose... Does that mean that you're paying extra for... This is my nerdiness now. Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean that you're paying more to the publisher in order to get the file because you're essentially playing, paying for additional material? I think, Do you see uh, what I mean? Yeah, no, I think when you hire something... Is there a right thing you, associated with Yeah, when you with hire it? anything with, a, with kind of an electronic component, I mean, I'm sure this isn't a hard and fast rule, but, um, you know, we did a Jonathan Harvey piece in the same show, which requires like an electronic component um and then you know when you hire that piece you basically get that bit of it as part of the score because it's essentially part of the the kind of musical material that is required and then i think with right most of the time if you choose to not use that then that's you know a decision to be made at your discretion 
I had no idea about that. I had I had assumed that any performance was was pre-recorded. I've learned something I didn't know. So yay, and I don't have to pay you, and you've bought the wine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I worry that we haven't really covered the thing that you wanted to talk about. Uh, no, but maybe no. we have. Um, uh, what are you doing next? Um, the next project for us is um, is a uh, is a real. I mean, it's a, it's probably the most classical thing we've ever done in inverted commas um it's a debate heaven late string quartet <laughs> no it's, it's, it's even worse it's bach uh, oh, it's right. um it's the complete goldberg variations right. in a string trio arrangement by sitkovetsky um and dimitri yeah right, right. um and um <laughs> in a way i think for our audience there's the potential for that to be far more of a challenging concert than like crazy noisy electronic-y new music um that we might you know play in other shows um why so why do you think that um i suppose you know a show like that hundred demons show which is really varied lots of different colors and lots of different sounds you know even if you really hate something we had a few people that walked out of a performance of michael gordon's uh, industry which is a really noisy distortion heavy kind of thing but I mean, it's ten minutes long. That so. wasn't in that show, though, was it? Yeah, yeah. Was it at King's Place? Was yeah. that in the first half? Yeah, it was the last thing we played in the first half. Okay, well, I stuck. I stuck around for stuck that. Around. So Congratulations! It was me. Yeah, and so you know, if if the piece isn't, you know, for did 10 they tell long, you why they'd walked out? Uh, too noisy. Didn't like it. Oh, they did actually tell you why they walked out. I mean, it is a noisy piece. Although I felt kind of vindicated after because I was the guy behind the desk, kind of pushing the volume up. Um, and felt <laughs> terrible, you know, of course, when we saw the first few people leave during the show. But then when we spoke to um, Helen, the, the kind of amazing King's Place lady, she said that actually they've had that piece in the past and it's been much louder in the past. Right. Um, even in, I think, Reich... Uh, 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 George Crumb, sorry, when he was kind of speaking about Black Angels, said something to the effect that the loud bits in that piece should be really loud. It should be amplified almost to the threshold of pain. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is great. I mean, what a badass instruction. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe some health and safety people may have a slightly different view on that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's not as loud as sitting next to the, you know, trombones you, in a Valkyrie performance. Uh, do you take that, um, do you find that difficult to deal with? I mean, that's that's kind of like immediate feedback that would be... Um, I mean, I'd, I'd feel crushed. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I from time to time I do I moderate panels, and and if I found that as a result of me moderating or asking a question, um, that two members of the of the audience walked out, I'd feel crushed. Yeah, I, do you do you? So thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I feel like I'm sort of slowly getting better at um, worrying less about what people think about our stuff and about you know my stuff. Um, I, I guess the kind of uh, the official line is, which we uh, which we really believe actually, is that if we're not if we're not taking risks, and if if from time to time things don't if uh, so, if everything always works, and if everything is always sort of liked by everyone, then we're probably not taking enough risks. I think, and so and life would be rather bland. Yeah, and so the the funny thing is that for us we were stressing like you wouldn't believe about this Schubert um, that we programmed because I think with our audiences, Death and the Maiden felt like the thing that was going to be really scary. 
and we'd be like, oh, you know, what if they, you know, what if they don't like it? What if it's too long? What if it's boring? I mean, it's a big piece, big musical architecture. It's like 45 minutes or something, the whole thing. Um, you know, you cut the first repeat out and then, you know, it's only like 38 minutes. Like, it's still big. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yet, that is less, sorry to interrupt uh, you, but that is less than one episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Game of Thrones is pretty good, though. I mean, I'm not, no, but I'm... Game I'm, of Thrones is probably better than a lot of Death of the Maiden performances. Oh, uh, but it's less time. Yeah, sure. I'm saying that you know people people will sit and listen to uh, sit sit and watch Game of Thrones. They will binge on Game of Thrones. Yeah, but and it's not go, apples oh. and apples. There's a lot of like you know boobs and violence in Game of Thrones. Whereas like Schubert, I think you know you have to go into <laughs> you need a different... more boobs. No, That's I mean wrong... <laughs> you have to go into a different kind of mental space for these big works. And I think that'll be the real challenge with this Bach thing as well. Is that. Um, you know, somehow, and I'm, I'm sure we'll really push this, you know, online with our audiences as well ahead of the ahead of the shows. That, you know, this is probably a piece that, you know, requires you to. I think if you know ahead of time that you're going to sit, just sit still and let something happen to you and happen around you, and it's going to, you know, that it's going to take 50 minutes. I'm quite big on telling people how long pieces are going to be because mm. I, I hate yes, it when I absolutely. hear a new work and you don't know whether you're halfway through it or, or kind of 10% of the way done, you know. Um, and so I think as long as you prepare your audience, it's generally okay. Um, yeah. I always feel uh, as though uh, whenever I go to concerts on the continent, on the continent, mm. that they seem, to, they seem to know about concerts. They seem to know how to do concerts better than we do in the UK, like generally speaking. To deliver them or to spectate? Uh, to, well, I suppose both. I'm thinking specifically about occasions when I finally got chamber music, for mm. example. So chamber music, my, my entry point was always orchestral music because I played in an orchestra, uh, in a youth orchestra. Um, chamber music just seemed a little bit too sort of like, it's like a museum piece or it's it's... It's, it's people under the microscope, and it just felt far too intense for me. Uh, and so I sort of went, well, scary, scary chamber music. Mm. Um, and I went to Verbier a couple of times, and I heard Brahms' piano quartet, mm. maybe, yeah. G minor, maybe. Uh, and I heard that in rehearsal, and I heard it really close. So I was quite, I was in the second row in essentially a hotel foyer that's where they did their master class in a yeah. hotel foyer so it was really really close and i was transported yeah uh and similarly in uh in the church there which is a very intimate space very warm very in- very intense uh and i heard quartet for the end of time and is it the last court beethoven quartet which has got the growth fugue uh yeah is that right I don't know what the opus number of it is, yeah. But both epic works. Mm. And and that was when I finally got chamber music because I suddenly thought, my God, it's like it's like having a massive meal, isn't it? And it's like, I'm getting the meal and nobody else is going to have this meal. It's just all me. I think there um, is something about that closeness that is is sort of amazing because, you know, if you're lucky enough to be at a performance where you have, you know, really incredible musicians performing, then... You know, it's like running alongside Usain Bolt at the Olympics. Yes, you know, yes, it's just exactly. it's like seeing the best in the world do this thing, which you know by definition is incredibly passionate and personal and intense, and 
it, you know, there's almost something kind of voyeuristic about yes. it because it, you know totally. you you have to you know completely open yourself up to to an audience. So it's I mean that's awesome. Are the so in the back of your mind are the people who you're hoping to um, delight with your programs? Are you sort of hoping that they will have that Olympic experience eventually? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Do you see yourself as a stepping stone in their sort of musical listening? Um, I guess what I what I would hope. I mean, I think that you know, on a good day, we can probably make them that kind of Olympic experience. I guess, but I, but I think you know it, what's what's kind of likely is that if they come along to something where they hear maybe their first bit of Beethoven or their first bit of Philip Glass or, you know, first bit of Shostakovich, then hopefully they go away and they start, you know, listening to a bit more Shostakovich and they go, oh my God, these symphonies are incredible, you know, and then maybe they buy a ticket to the Halle or to the, whatever, BBC Concert Orchestra. Um, And so, yeah, it's kind of a gateway drug in a way. I think Mm. that's the other reason to prevent, to present varied programs is that, you know, we never... Like we're, we we always actually you know say in a lot of our kind of outward facing um, you know kind of copy and messaging is that it's okay not to like everything you know we're not trying to play programs where you're going to like every single thing um, and I mean I I have that all the time you must have that all the time yes well. I do there are, it took me a long time to realise that um, if I go to a concert and I Listen, Brahms one was usually the was usually the measure because I adore Brahms yeah. one because I probably heard it as a teenager, and I found it incredibly, you know, moving, angst ridden, uplifting, triumphant. I mean, it was all all of those things which, as a teenager, it's like, oh my god, it's yeah. my theme song. Um, it's my theme song. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It goes on for ages and requires an entire orchestra. Um, what was my point? Uh, yeah, so Brahms one. Uh, and the first the first Brahms one that I heard was a shitty recording on a CD that was given away with a magazine. And I remember playing it to uh, my A-level student cohort um, at the time and my music teacher. And they both listened to it and they went, oh, it's not very good at all. Uh, and, I, but I, and I couldn't understand what they were talking about. Subsequently, when I hear Brahms one in live performance, I will, I'll sit there and go, yeah, this is not really... It's not really working. It's not how I remember it. And it took. And it's not that I wanted to be like that shitty yeah. recording because yeah. I don't. Uh, if anything, uh, I think it's John Elliot Gardner, who has recorded uh, historically in Fort with. Who is it with? Maybe it's not Gardner, but there is something on um, uh, period instruments. Mm. There's a recording of it on period instruments, which just sounds so raw and so electric. Um, that would be my go-to thing. But it took me a long time to realise when I'm sat in an auditorium that if I'm not really getting it, it's because that that magic hasn't been created. And, yeah. and that's perfectly okay. And that's fine, you know. I mean, I think, you know... And nobody talks about that. Nobody no says No one does that. talk about it, yeah. And, and I think it's really important that we do, actually, because no one, no one kind of goes around saying that every single time you step into a cinema... <laughs> You're going to have the best time. Yeah. You know, it's going to be incredible. Yeah. Um, yes, but or every single book that you read, exactly, is just going to be completely like transported. The best book ever. <laughs> um, but somehow we, you know, I, I guess you know, we compensate because we really want people to to like the thing that we do, and and of course we really you know believe in the thing that we do, and we want to kind of evangelize about it. Um, 
but but yeah, I mean, not every concert is going to be a total no. winner. But but I, I suppose then the thing that we have to, I guess that's the thing about the variety, isn't it? Is that it's okay, you know, if you don't like this thing, maybe you like this thing. Or if you don't like this thing, then maybe you like this thing. Or maybe you just, like, hate all music and then, like, go to the movies. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe you're an arsehole. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also fascinated by what is going on when that moment has been created. So uh, when I heard Eric Liu play yeah. for the first time in the semifinals at the Leeds Piano Competition... I was very tired, I was slightly sweaty, uh, and I sat down, there were lots of really expert people around me with their notebooks, and um, and I just sat, and they had screens, that was a, that's a really inspired thing actually, having, if there's a piano soloist on stage, having screens down the side of the auditorium so that you can see what's going on, yeah, that's quite, right. I think that's quite an interesting thing, because actually it's providing some visual interest, and it's hooking you in, it's a really good yeah. idea. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and I remember sitting there thinking, wow, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what it is that you've actually done, but you've created something really quite special. Hmm. And uh, immediately afterwards, I just thought, oh, I must, be, I must have been drunk or something, or I must, have been, <laughs> I must have been thinking about something else. I must have been dreaming about the blog post that I like to write. Um, and then I heard him in the final, and he was exactly the same. Yeah. And and there is i'm fascinated by what the constituent parts you know what what is going into creating that moment because I, I think that's worth articulating as well yeah, i mean that's know. that's witchcraft isn't it like why is it that you know that if you get 10 fiddle players up to play the same notes in the same order and everyone plays it like super in tune and if everyone plays it in exactly the same tempo and yet there might be three that move you to tears and, and six kind of all right ones and one horrific one, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of amazing. It's the sum of, of 10,000 little decisions that you make on the, you know, that you make along the way. Do you feel, um, uh, what's it like trying to sell the product? That's what I want to know. Um, is it, is it stressful or is it just something? No, that's... I think that's kind of, I, I, I kind of love that bit in a way that's sort of, that's, I don't think that's a stressful part of my job. Um, we, I mean, I, I mean, I genuinely think that the thing that we're doing is, is awesome. Like not necessarily our version of it in particular, but, but, you know, if we play, I don't know, um, you know, quarter of the end of time, that's just a brilliant thing. I can, you know, absolutely kind of get super excited about that to a room full of strangers and, it doesn't feel like something that you have to put on. And, and no, I no. think that ex- that excitement is infectious, actually. We, we sort of think a bit about this, and um, I suppose one of, the, one of the effects that we try and achieve with our work is that, you know, that feeling where someone that you care about shares something with you that they really care about, you know, kind of a, a record or, you know, oh, come with me, let's see this movie. I saw it last night, but it was so good. I really want to see it again. Let's go together. Um, and I think that you can create that in a concert hall or in a, or in a mm. kind of venue by treating the audience as complicit in the act of music making and bringing them into this shared space. And, you know, it's, it's not a case then of yeah, the, we're uh, going to yeah. make noise and you can be in the room with us while we do it. It's that this is a one-off <laughs> thing that is going to happen tonight in this space with you guys and us. It will never be like this again. And we're kind of in it together. 
and then you know i think you can you can sort of even strengthen the impact of that if you have a beer with them afterwards and you know you actually take the time to actually speak with them and and hear the things that they loved and the things that they didn't like and i mean that's awesome so that kind of connection with the audience i think is what we get really excited about and like there's a lot of really amazing music and I mean, even if 10% of the chamber music repertoire is like really awesome and, you know, there's sort of okay stuff in the rest of the, in the rest of the mix, we could be programming 50 years of Manchester Collective performances out of the, the really awesome chunk of, of the repertoire. I uh, came away from the King's Place event thinking, oh, God, it'd be amazing. And I think I said this to you uh, when we had a coffee, um, it would be amazing to see it in all sorts of different venues. I don't know whether I mentioned different venues. I don't know whether since that coffee you've had ideas for different venues. Uh, in London, do you have dream venues? Oh yeah, I mean totally. I we've um, I mean this season we've taken the whole the whole season of work to this outrageous place in Salford called the White Hotel, which is quite a notorious nightclub. Um, it's an ex MOT garage next to Strangeways Prison. Wow! <laughs> um, and I mean, of course, it's uh, it's kind of a, a loved and respected live music venue that to date has had zero overlap with the classical world in the kind of Venn diagram of those audiences. But they have incredible DJs and producers and musicians that come and do live acts and parties and whatever. They have a 24-hour liquor license as well, which is awesome. So they have these nights that start at, you know, 11 p.m. and and end at, you know, kind of 11 in the morning the next day. Um, So it's, you know, it's kind of this bonkers place. Um, And, I mean, it's literally a garage. There's like a corrugated iron sort of, you know, roller door on one end and... In the winter, we open the door a bit to the elements outside by like 30 centimetres. And then we have to bring in this giant sort of hose pipe thing, which pumps hot air into the room. Because otherwise, you know, the icicles start forming on those skulls. You are definitely, you are definitely, you have a theatrical thing going on though, don't you? I've said that before. Because you're clearly interested in theatre. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, everything that we do is theatre though. Like, I think anyone that like is just interested in going to a concert and closing their eyes and opening their ears. I mean, uh, what is it that's different between <laughs> you're, that? You're expressing dissatisfaction. No, I mean, what course. is it about that that's different to putting on a, a really good CD of an amazing live performance? You know, in fact, I think you could probably make the oh, argument if you okay. were feeling stroppy that <clears throat> sitting in the back row of the festival hall, like, you know, two kilometres from the stage or whatever, that's probably <laughs> an inferior experience to putting on an amazing you're recording of the same orchestra. You're suggesting, and I completely understand where you're coming from, uh, that um, that you might as well be listening to a CD if you're just going to go to a concert hall and just listen with your eyes shut. Which is not, and it's not criticism. I I get that it's not. I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, is that there is something which is more than just noise as part of a live performance, and that is that you go and see the great orchestras of the world. You know, look, we this city is like amazing. You know, there's like five of the best orchestras on planet Earth. Mm. You know, playing in this city, you go along to a great show of the LSO or whatever. And, you know, you see, you're sitting in the hall and it's a communal, it's like a shared experience. That's already theatre. Because, like, how weird is that? That we're in a dark room mm. and you're sitting next to two people you've never it. met before. <laughs> it's very strange, actually. <laughs> yeah, I love and it. Then, I love it. you know, you look onto the stage and there's, you know, these kind of this sort of 
larger than life lighting situation where suddenly your attention is focused and mm. then people come out in costumes and then you know they kind of it's this sort of bizarre sort of ritual occasion where they come out with like 300 year old you know kind of fiddles and cellos and whatever um and then you know the kind of sheer kinetic energy of it when you look at you know an orchestra sort of ripping away at the climax of a big romantic symphony and the guys in the sort of, you know, 19th desk of the second violins are kind of putting their backs into it. I mean, it's, it's an incredible experience. I, I uh, experience it, uh, or I imagine that it is what going to church is like. Yeah. So when I step into an auditorium, it's like, I feel calm now. I mean, that's the thing is that, like, I mean, like at church, I mean, you can pray at home, praying's free, but... <laughs> You know, when you go to church, you're in the room with other people. Yes. And that's the thing that kind of changes it into theatre. I mean, look, the Catholics are great theatre makers. Um, uh, I, yeah, I, I think, and then and then I suppose with the stuff that we do, which is, you know, mostly in, in sort of much smaller venues than the sort of festival hall, you add proximity to that and you add the fact that we bring these codified rituals of the classical world into a space that feels completely alien, you know, into kind of an abandoned cotton mill or into a garage or whatever. Um, and suddenly it's like you enter this kind of magical world. I mean, it's, it's nuts. It's proximity, isn't it? That's, that's what those unusual locations provide you with. It's, it's proximity. Yeah, but I think I it's also... I don't want to oversimplify. No, but, no, no. But, I mean, it is, I think the closeness is really important. Because you know, when you hear the bow on the string, speaking yeah. for myself, when I hear the bow on the string or when I can see the bow on the string, oh, no, then it's I feel awesome. like I'm really connected. That's when I want to play the violin. I mean, it's uh, that's definitely exciting. I mean, for what it's worth, I think we do that in the concert hall. Like in Manchester when we play, we get the audience up on stage with us often. We'll have a you know the ensemble at the front of the stage, extended out to its fullest symphony orchestra size, and then have a horseshoe of audience members surrounding the players, looking back out at the auditorium. Wow, um, which is great, you know. And I mean, that's of course that's also theatre um, mm. that because the they're first seeing time, the auditorium in a completely different way. Yeah, and as a punter, you get to walk through that door that you yeah. never normally yeah. get to yeah. you know come through. I mean. I don't know. We have a we have like the the terrible IKEA fake Persian rug, which every single flat chair for the last thirty years has probably had in their house. Um, it's kind of you know three meters by two meters or something. We've been touring with that rug since day one, and no matter the size of the concert hall, we've found a way to kind of work that uh, you know that piece of furniture into the performance. And the you know the players play on this rug. We bring our own lights, which we have on stage These in are the, the, the concert hall. The sort of um, almost sort of Second World War. Yeah, they're kind of like big industrial sort of lamps, things. you know. Yeah. And and I guess it's not that. I mean, look, all these venues have incredible lighting rigs. We don't need any of that stuff. But I suppose these are all little signals to an audience that what you're going to see now is, you know, this is maybe going to be a bit different. Or even if it's not going to be different, it's a trigger for them to think about it differently. Uh, but it also focuses attention, because essentially what those four lights do is it creates a box. Yeah. So it reduces the, it reduces the size of the stage. You know, I'm basically an armchair director. Uh, but that that's what those lights are doing, yeah. and that, that focuses attention. Yeah, I mean, I think often... And, and I guess if it's a new audience, you know, if there are people in that audience that um, that 
have certain preconceptions of what going to a classical show is about, then by giving them little signs like that, maybe they go, oh, hold on, maybe this isn't going to be like that. Oh, are you better go- pay attention. Are you going to stream them? I want you to stream them on YouTube. Why, oh, no, are, you not, why are you not doing that? I want oh, we, you to do we, that now. <laughs> yeah, we do do that. I mean, we you stream do? them on oh, Facebook, oh. actually. Okay. Can we do it on YouTube? Can well, we've, on YouTube? we've just started a YouTube channel. Um, good opportunity for a cheeky plug. Um, well, I mean, it is your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so, I mean, pretty much everything. We have new videos that go up on YouTube every Monday. Are you going to put them live, though? Um, yeah, we... I, there is definitely a way to do that on YouTube. We haven't kind of figured that out yet. We have done that on Facebook in the right. past. Okay. Um, I mean, because that's what I'm into as a punter. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah, it's partly awesome. it's because an event. Yeah. I have I have a big TV. I don't have a big TV. It's my partner's TV, but he bought it. It's his. It's part of his. You're in it now, though. Yeah, we've been together a long time. It's basically my TV. Um, uh. And as a result of having the TV and our mobile phones, we now can't. We now watch loads of stuff yeah, on awesome. YouTube, and I think YouTube has tightened up its sort of its offer for users. So you cast loads of stuff, you like loads of stuff, and then you get served up loads of other things. But as a result, my appetite for for live streams of concerts has uh, increased. Yeah, and it's so, a great product, YouTube. I mean, I think what we can do now as well, which is sort of a new thing. Um, is record a show, you know, with three cameras, cut it together beautifully, take the audio, send mm-hmm. it off to the studio, have it mastered so it sounds, you know, kind of as if you were in the room, you know, or whatever, better sometimes. <laughs> um, and then send that off to YouTube and and put it out as if it was a live stream. And so you can still have uh, a, a sort of online broadcast of a show that is an event that people gather okay, around, it okay, goes yeah. out, we say that we're going to be broadcasting this show at 8 o'clock on the you know 28th of whatever. Um, so it was recorded as live. Yeah. And and it's a delayed broadcast. Distributed. Yeah, it's a, it's a relay. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, which is cool. So it's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's great that we have these options, you know, now sort of for the first time. And I guess the BBC has always been able to do that, but then the BBC rocks up with like a giant semi-trailer full of like super expensive gear. And in the same way that you're making this podcast with a field recorder and a set of headphones, um, you know, we can now record these shows and send them out to, you know, a crazy big audience. Yeah, I don't think there's enough time for me to explore my feelings and thoughts about the BBC. So, so not really. I get what you're saying, Adam. Um, uh, so what's next? What are you doing tomorrow? What, 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 what's, the, what's the next thing? Uh, well, we're in London. We're recording in uh, Kentish Town, and so I'm going to hop on a train tonight, go back up to Manchester, which is where we're based. And, You're going um, back to Manchester tonight? Yeah, yeah. Lord. Oh, no, it's all right. What time is your train? Oh, I've got an open return. Oh, that's fine. That's that's no, good. no, 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 all good. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then tomorrow, it's kind of back to the office, I guess, where... Um, there's a collective office. Yeah, yeah. We work out of a, um, we work out of a, a literal shipping container. Oh, um, it's, you mean uh, there are no windows? It's not as bad as it sounds. It's in like, a, it's at a place called the Sharp Project in Manchester, which mm-hmm. is where um, Sharp, like electronics, used to manufacture, oh. you know, dishwashers or whatever. And I had uh, a record player and uh, that was a, a tape deck. Yes. There you go. So wow. they may well have came out of this Oldham Road thing. 
And anyway, this old factory has been repurposed into this incredible digital hub for, um, you know, kind of cool businesses. So there's an amazing recording studio there and there are sound stages. Lang Lang was in there the other day recording something. Right. Um, and then they But not these... in a container. No, he no. was in the studio, but then they basically had these rows of, um, of kind of uh, converted shipping containers with glass kind of sides to them. And they're kind of great offices, and they're super cheap. I mean, there's only three of us. We're only little. So, um, yeah, it's, it's good. They're very small. You mean your colleagues are very small? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah we're just little. <laughs> we're tiny, tiny people. Uh, uh, great. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that we haven't covered? Um, no, I, I, it's been a real pleasure. I'd be curious to hear from you what you're, like, what a really um, a kind of an enduring highlight of of your recent kind of concert going, you know, career has been, is there anything that you've seen recently that really stood out? Like, and what was it about it that, that was fantastic? Um, sorry to put you on the spot. There are two, I think, I think probably, um, I've already mentioned Eric Lou. Uh, I think I'm at risk of sounding like a bit of a fanboy, really, which I kind of like, even though I'm 46 and I'm, probably a bit too old to be a bit of a fanboy um uh but last year i think i heard bbc now or the bbc scottish do vaughan williams it might have been the london symphony or it might have been the pastoral symphony and i went into the albert hall i hate the albert hall in a way because it's i think it's a shit acoustic uh but people are led to believe that it's the go-to concert destination. That's I think that's... People have really mixed feelings about the Albert Hall. But, I mean, it's a great I mean, radio studio. It's effectively a massive radio studio. Yeah, but it's also like... I mean, it's like the ultimate... It's the ultimate kind of theatrical music experience, yes, isn't it? Yeah, to go we're, into we're, So I'm conflicted about yeah. the Albert Hall. Uh, whenever I step into it, I, during the proms, I feel very warm towards it. If I step into the hall outside of the proms, then I think, yeah, you're just another concert venue. You're not special. Um, but I went into the Albert Hall feeling quite stressed that evening. I mean, really sort of like got a lot of tension in my stomach. If anybody talks to me, I'm going to bite the head off. Keep away, everybody. And I think it was the second movement where I that have these really long, languid phrases. That's how I remember it. And it was the first time I'd heard it. And and I started breathing really, really deep breaths because inevitably the phrases, well, I didn't realise this at the time, but the phrases were so long. And right at the end of the phrase, there is a, there's a resolution. Uh, and so that's when you breathe out. Uh, and by the end of that movement, I had arrived at a solution for my problem. <laughs> and I was feeling completely different and i'm not saying that the music made me relax i mean it did in Uh, in some it did in some respects um i'm saying that because it had that effect on me that musical experience was transformative for me uh, and then I had a meeting with the person in question the following day, and I got the gig, and I got the money. I was, <laughs> was going to say there so was a resolution. Then you left the concert and, like fired three yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> I said you're all assholes. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's true. That that was, um, and that and that was the first time we'd heard that work. Um, I remember feeling quite sort of, and that's what I mean. That actually you can go into a concert hall, 
and there's a strong chance that you'll sit there and think, oh, it's a bit shit, or they're not playing very well, or she's looking a bit she's looking a bit tired, you know, not not using all of the bow there. Um, or you can sit there and be completely transported, and that is the magical thing about it, and mm. you have no idea whether it'll happen. Yeah. I'm telling you stuff that you know already. I guess in the, the nice thing for us is that in this city, your odds are better than in most places that you'll go and experience something that's pretty awesome. Yeah, where was I? Uh, I can I can give you my worst experience. <laughs> I'd like to give you my worst experience, which was uh, Mallorca. I went to hear a symphony orchestra in Mallorca on holiday the year before last. Brooklyn Five. Oh yeah, <laughs> fucking awful. That's long. Really, it's for it to really be bad, demanding. It's a, long <laughs> it's a really demanding work, and I was really hopeful. And it was terrible. It was really, really awful. And I wanted to get out of the concert hall as quickly as possible. Not like so bad it's good, unfortunately. No, case. there was no irony in it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no irony. It's awful. Um, uh, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. No, thanks, um, John. Pleasure. And uh, I don't know what to do. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, leave a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page, or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.